the book of Romans chapter 6 once again. You say we appreciate your prayers while we were away with the family. I grew another year older in that week. So time goes on. The little ones are anticipating the birthdays and longing for them to keep clicking along. We had another birthday this week and our oldest grandchild is a teenager now. You have to have more birthdays yourself for that to happen. So anyway, but it's good to be back with you and trust the Lord will help us today. Let us again turn and read the familiar words, but the opening portion of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we're buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. We'll end a reading there in verse 14. And trust again the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his word. Let's bow our heads and hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we again approach today to the throne of grace. We come acknowledging our need of the help of your Spirit. And we pray that you might shut us in in these moments that we share. Lord, convince us of the importance of these moments week by week. Lord, we're grateful for every help, for every step of progress that your Spirit aids us in as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. But as your word is described to us as daily bread, we have need to be nourished afresh. We have need to be called aside from the distractions of a world that is under the curse. And we pray that we might know something of a Sabbath today, of food for our souls, of rest for our souls and minds. And Lord, we pray that your word will 
again, strengthen and encourage us one and all. So we lift these things to you and ask your help even now in considering your word together. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to start today with a review of where we stand in the flow of Paul's argument here in Romans. Having expounded and illustrated the doctrine of free justification in chapters 3 and 4, he opens chapter 5 with a glorious statement of the believer's security in his reconciled state. And then he begins to unfold those tremendous passages with regard to the two Adams and shows us the way in which God grants us that security. It is here possible now only for the believer to sense this security, this reconciliation, because he is found in Christ. And so having so clearly established that God deals with us based on the work of Christ and not upon our own works, that sin's reign unto death is broken, and now grace reigns in the life of the believer, Paul has turned his attention to a potential objection. We saw last time that this objection in verse 1 that we read, in some ways can be described as a natural question. And we tried last time to get a little bit cute with the word natural, from the sense that from one perspective it's a logical question. If you're saying that God deals with us based upon what Christ has done alone, not based in any way, in whole or in part, on what we have done, does it matter then what we do? Does it matter then how we live? There's the natural question. Of course, Paul's going to answer that with a gospel logic that transcends that natural logic. But there's another side of that natural question. And that's the carnal side that are those detractors that would come along and perhaps try and pull away from Paul's message of grace by saying, if you're going to preach this, then people are going to conclude it doesn't matter how they live. And actually, that's an objection that has followed the preaching of the truth of the gospel from the very beginning. It's the objection that the Jews would have brought to Paul as he came preaching free justification. And of course, their mindset is, no, we have a a different superior standing with God than these Gentiles do because of our heritage, because of our works, because of our circumcision, because of our rituals. And we see the Judaizers in the New Testament particularly dealt with in Galatians. And they're seeking to corrupt the Gentile believers with that teaching. It's the same teaching, it's the same accusation that came against the Reformers in the days of the Reformation. When the gospel of the scriptures, when the gospel of the doctrine of free grace, of free justification was rediscovered and republished, the reformers met with the objection, well, this teaching of grace is going to lead to sin. And of course, they strenuously objected and opened the scriptures such as this one to overturn that accusation. Paul is coming here, I say, to this natural objection but he meets it with a gospel answer. And an answer that comes couched in the opening phrase of verse 2 in the strongest possible terms. God forbid. May it never be. Perish the thought. Translators wrestle with how to so forcibly put the objection 
it's so strong. And then he meets it by saying, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Last time we sought in some ways just to provide an introduction to this chapter and its teaching. I want today to follow on from that, but I want to pull out, and I believe at least if my memory is serving correctly, that I suggested these terms last time. But I want you to look with me in verse 3, and it recurs in verse 6 and verse 9, the term no. Then you come to verse 11, and we find the term here translated in our authorized version, reckon. And then we come in verse 13, carrying on the thought from verse 12, to to the word yield. There's a sequence in these terms that is put before us in this chapter. And I think just underscoring these particular words is of great help in understanding not only Paul's answer to this false charge against his gospel, but also to the very practical realities that we face in daily life as Christians. It is a sequence, it's a gospel truth that sadly has suffered a lot in evangelical churches in the last century. It's come under some review, we might say, in the last quarter century. There are new dangers that have accompanied that shift. But there's a sequence here, I say, that is powerful for the believer. There are many that have been taught and have gravitated toward the teaching because they sense the necessity, they they sense the grain of truth that's in it, that we as Christians must yield ourselves to God and not yield ourselves to the world and to the flesh anymore. And so there's great emphasis, there's great challenge, there's great rebuke at times for believers in their daily lives as to how they live. They need to be more yielded. They need to be more consecrated. They need to be more distinct from the world and more like unto Christ. All of which again is very good. All of which is required of us in Scripture. It is the path of godly living. It is the natural, can we use that word again, path of those that are born from above. But some of the teaching on this, some of the challenge on it, has lacked much of what precedes that admonition to yield. There are things we're called upon to know. And in knowing these things, we're then called upon to Reckon upon them, to acknowledge them. And it is from this position that we're then called upon to yield and to walk in that newness of life. So I want today again, in something of summary, because there are details, there are little debates along the way among commentaries and scholars as to the meaning of some of the parts of this passage. One of them we'll come to very quickly as we come to verse 3. The main thrust of the argument is clear. I say it's just some of the details that have some difficulty attached to them. So I want today, in a sense, to focus on that clear line of thought. We may comment on some of the questions as we go along. 
But to get that flow, because again, here is a portion of doctrine that is eminently practical. Can we say is quite necessary for the practical outworking of the gospel in our lives? So I want to focus our thoughts around those three terms we suggested today. To know, to reckon, and to yield. Firstly then, what are we to know? Verse 3 we read, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we're buried with them by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him. I will end reading there, but carrying the thoughts along. What is it then that we're to know? Paul, after he gives that solemn rebuke of the charge from verse 1, God forbid, has said, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul is taking that truth of the believer being dead to sin. And that's what we looked at last time. And it is based upon that that he's calling us to know what's implied, what is included in that death to sin. Now, last time we suggested that there's a false interpretation here, and it's not limited to perfectionists. It's not limited to charismatics, the higher life, holiness type people. But there are many that look at this and say, this is what the believer should strive for, to become dead to sin, to live in such a way that sin doesn't impact him anymore. The temptation loses its power. He's invulnerable to that connection to sin any longer. And so it's been suggested that there's this next level. There's this level of sanctification. There's this level of consecration that you should aspire to. And so it turns the chapter into being a goal that Christians need to reach subsequent to their conversion instead of what the chapter really is about. It's not about a next level of sanctification that some Christians attain. And Paul's encouraging all of us to seek to attain and join that group. It's a statement about something that is true of all believers from the moment they're justified. He's not saying you need to die to sin. He's saying you have already died to sin. And it's here that he begins this unfolding of what then we're to know. He says to the Romans, you're not ignorant of this. Look again. If you want to look at this objection about how being a Christian impacts your life, then look back to what you know of the gospel. Knowing then, verse 3, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now here's where we have to enter into the first point of discussion in the chapter. 
I don't think ultimately it impacts the teaching of the chapter, but it's something we wrestle through. Is Paul talking here about baptism, meaning the ordinance of water baptism in the New Testament church? Yes or no? Some suggest that he is. Many commentators suggest that he is. Then what they have to do is they have to draw the connection between what baptism symbolizes and baptism itself. And so there's like an extra step that you have to take. Then you have the question, I suppose, I didn't hear the commentators wrestling with this. What do you do with people that are genuine believers that are unbaptized? Is this teaching true of them? Or do they have to get the ordinance, get the water applied to them, and then reckon upon what Paul's saying here? Or again, is this something that's true of all believers? We don't have time to review our studies. For those of you that have been here long enough that I used to teach Sunday school, we periodically went through a season of teaching on baptism, particularly to explain why our church is open to different orthodox understandings of the mode and subjects of baptism. But one of the things that we study in that is that the whole family, the word family that surrounds baptism, has different significance in different contexts, but one of the common threads of all those words is the idea of union. And you think about that, a good example of that we pull out is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He talks about the nation of Israel being baptized unto Moses. Well, they weren't taking a New Testament water ritual at that point. But in the exodus from Egypt, there was the formulation of the nation of Israel. They entered Egypt as a family, an extended family, but as a family. They leave Egypt as a nation. And they're baptized unto Moses. They were united to him. It's through his leadership under God, obviously, that the nation was formed and born and went into the land. There was a union they had with Moses. Well, here, if we look at this, it speaks here about us being baptized into Jesus Christ. Well, what has Paul spent the last half of chapter 5 Establishing the believer's union with Christ. How can it be that God justifies us by faith alone? Because He's united us to this one who is our new representative, our new head. And so here, I take the view that Paul's not talking about the ordinance at all. He's talking about the truth he's just unfolded in chapter 5. We've been baptized into Christ. We've been united to Him. We'll jump a little ahead of ourselves here, but in our second term, reckoning in verse 11, it's the first place in the New Testament where Paul uses the terminology of being in Christ. I say we'll come to that in a few moments. But what the overriding theme and truth is here is that as a believer in Jesus Christ, God has put you in a covenantal union with Christ. He dealt with Christ the way you needed to be dealt with. 
He poured out His wrath against your sins in the person of Christ. How can He do that? By this covenantal union. He's now dealing with you based upon the righteousness that Christ worked out in your place. How can He do that? The covenantal union between you and Christ. And so here He draws upon that truth. He says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. We've been united to Him in His death. He is dead to sin. We in Him are dead to sin. And so he continues verse 4. Therefore we're buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Here as he unfolds one of the truths of the gospel, none of the parts of the work of Christ can be viewed or can be isolated from the other. We don't look at his death without understanding the burial, which of course confirms his death. It wasn't just a swoon. It wasn't a temporary passing out. He was dead. He died, was buried. He was raised again. And he says we have been united to Christ in that. When he died, we died. When He was buried, we were buried. When He rose, we arose. There's a union between Christ and His people. He carries that on. This is one of the reasons if you were in that class and studying the ordinance of baptism, this passage is used by believers Baptists that look at immersion as the only proper mode of baptism. We're not arguing with the application of the passage. But the point is, is that if you're going to draw a mode from the different portions of Scripture, well, this one carries on a different picture, a different emblem in verse 5. It's not burial and resurrection here. It's now being planted. He says, for if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, planted, I think, is a worthy translation here, but it's a full term. It's one Peter uses when he speaks about the engrafted word. And one I was referring or using had the powerful reference here to that particular translation of the term, something that's engrafted. So something as a kid that's always... Um, I don't know if perplexed is the right word, but when you see, now I'm going to lose the word of what particular type of person. I don't think it's, well, botanists maybe correct me later. The people that would take a tree limb from one type of tree, cut off a limb from another tree, and graft them together. And I always said, how can that live? When I cut down flowers and all of that as a kid, they just died. <laughs> Well, those that know and can perform that, the branch that's grafted into the tree becomes part of that tree. It's identified. It's united with it. And here Paul is saying, we're planted, we're engrafted into Christ. 
This is what is true of us as believers. This is what we're called upon to know. He comes in verse 6 and adds to this. Knowing this. That our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. Now here again we get into territory. If we were to go out of just going through Romans. And get into the realm of true systematic theology. And carry every thought and every parallel scripture to carry us along. There's some There's some big questions here. But understand what Paul has said. Our old man is crucified with him. Some of the reading I did for today has made me think about next week being kind of the the footnotes for today's message. But some of our thoughts and some of the things we might imply from a couple of other scriptures, one in Colossians and one in Ephesians, is that putting the old man to death is a constant ongoing task of the believer. But the scripture doesn't teach that. The scripture teaches that the old man is already dead. It gets into the whole question of, as believers, do we have one nature or two? And some of that gets into the question of, well, how do you define nature? Because if you define nature in one way, the answer is one. If you define nature in the other way, then the answer is two. And we're not going into all of those today. But the old man here is already dead. Paul is putting before us accomplished fact. He's putting before us objective truth. What is true of us? as believers in Jesus Christ. We have been united to Him. We have been united to Him in such a way that His death is reckoned as our death. That His resurrection is reckoned as our resurrection. Now we did not literally die when He died. We were not literally resurrected when He rose from the dead. But we were in Him when He accomplished Those things. In the sight of God, they are counted as ours. And so we are dead to sin. This will come out further in Paul's dealings in the latter part of this chapter and then over into chapter 7. The fact that we do battle with sin. He's not teaching perfectionism. He's not teaching that Christians don't have the ability to sin anymore. He's not teaching that sin and its allurements have no impact on us anymore. What he's saying is is that we have died to sin. That sin's reign over us is finished. Our relationship to sin is very different now that we are in Christ. Sin is an intrusion. Sin is contrary to the new nature. It's contrary to the new man. And this brings in the truth that we put our labels to. Justification is inevitably going to result in sanctification, a word that doesn't appear in Romans, ultimately in glorification of all of those that are in Christ. And so, 
Newness of life is not an optional second tier for Christians. To put this in, I guess, those of us now old enough to say, the debate of the last generation, lordship versus non-lordship salvation. Can you have Jesus as Savior without having Him as Lord? Can you have Him as justifier without having Him as sanctifier? Well, sadly, the dispensationalists and those in their wake answered that you could have Him as Savior without having Him as sanctifier. And the sobering realities of that antinomian teaching infiltrating the American evangelical church is what led MacArthur back in the late 80s to write the gospel according to Jesus. He began his journey toward and into the Reformed faith, seeing the heresy of that antinomian teaching. We don't have Jesus as justifier and then decide on our own later whether we want Him as sanctifier or not. Justification inevitably results in sanctification. Now it's necessary in our understanding of the gospel to see those as different parts of redemption. There's the legal, judicial part. Justification. Those that are in heaven today, they're absent from the body, present with the Lord, but they are not wrestling with sin any longer. They're no more justified then the worst sinner in town, as he's brought to Christ, is justified 30 seconds after he's saved. It's our legal standing and position with God. It's work done for us. Sanctification is that work done in us. And what Paul is unfolding here is as logical as it may seem, To say, well, if if we're justified based entirely upon Jesus and not on us, then it doesn't matter how we live. And Paul says, perish the thought. Those that God has united to Christ from this legal standpoint of imputing righteousness to us just as our sins were imputed to Him are the same people that He's going to work in and bring to newness of life. Sin doesn't reign over us anymore. Our relationship to sin has changed. Sin, rather than being the natural waters that we swim in, as it were, is an intrusion into the new life. It is an unwelcome intruder. And when you find someone, and this is the danger of the antinomian teaching and even the antinomian tendencies are so true in so many of our American churches. The decisionism where people said, well, I've, I've walked the aisle, I've signed the card, I've done whatever. And they're comfortable in sin. Their lives are indeed unchanged. They have no evidence of sanctification, no evidence of grace at all. It's an evidence that they're still in an unjustified state. They're not believers in Jesus Christ. They're believers in the power of their own ritual. 
They're believers in the efficacy of their own decision. They're believers in the value of church membership or whatever else other than Christ. And they're not in Him. But those that are in Him, those that are united to Him, are united to Him in His death. Sin is no longer their natural habitat. It's the unwelcome intrusion that brings sorrow. That brings grief. And you see the examples in Scripture, so notably David, recorded for us both in the commission of his sins and in the Psalms and showing us his state of mind and heart prior to and subsequent to confession. Sin is the unwelcome intruder into the life of the believer. But here we see Paul fighting then this antinomian heresy by saying, look, this is what you must know. We're united to Christ in His death and in His resurrection. Our old man is crucified with Him. Our relationship to God and to the law, as we'll come to in a moment, is changed now. That old man is dead. The body of sin here is destroyed. Now that's one of the big discussions. What's Paul talking about here? The body of sin. Is he talking about our natural body? I don't think the body is excluded from this. But in what sense is it destroyed? The body so often is the channel through which sin is performed we are a lord and that is destroyed it is now an instrument to be yielded unto god it's that which is to be used in the pursuit of god and of righteousness but he says here he that is dead verse 7 is freed from sin we're freed from sin's dominion We're freed from sin's control. Here's what we're to know. And he says then in verse 8, if we be dead with Christ, and that's if, as you see those throughout Scripture, if in the sense of since. Since we're dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Him knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Sin doesn't have any claims on Him anymore. There's nothing more that sin can do to Him. There's nothing more that sin can call forth from Him. The wages of sin, death, have been paid by Him. He dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over Him. Believer, that's what we're to know. In the same way that death doesn't have dominion over Jesus anymore. Death, sin, don't have dominion over us anymore. Here, then, is what we are to know. So then he says in verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves... To be dead indeed unto sin. We're to know 
Now we're to reckon. And if we could put a little catchphrase, as it were, alongside of the first word, to know. What we're to know is what God has done when He united us to Jesus. And that's what is unfolded in the last half of chapter 5. And now, digging deeper into that truth in the first half of chapter 6. We were so united to Christ that when He died, we died. We are so united to Christ that when He rose again, we rose. We're so united to Christ that as He lives unto God, we are alive unto God. And so we're to reckon upon it. If we're to know God has done this, we're to reckon we must acknowledge this. And what he says in verse 11, and I mentioned this a moment ago, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is translated here as through is the same thing that is translated elsewhere throughout Paul's writings, so notably in Ephesians, as in. We are alive unto God in Jesus Christ our Lord. This was news to me as I prepared for today's message and worked through the commentaries. But this is the first place, if you just look at the the sequence of the writing of Paul's epistles, this is the first place that Paul uses this terminology that came so ultimately to characterize him in Christ. We are alive unto God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what we are to reckon upon. To know what God has done for us in Christ. Not merely to know it intellectually, to have it presented to us as a fact, a doctrine, but to reckon upon it. And reckon, you remember, is the the language of the accountant. To count it. To acknowledge it. To reckon it as true. To act upon it. To rest upon it. Some have phrased it this way. I think in some ways it can be said in a shallow way. In other ways it is quite worthy and exceedingly deep. But if what Christ has done is good enough for God, shall it not be good enough for me? If God has accepted me in the Beloved, as we read elsewhere, then how is it that I can doubt my acceptance with God? How is it that I can doubt that I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ? When we are moved to doubt, when we are moved by our own fear perhaps, and I think perhaps perhaps even more often moved by the subtle temptation of our enemy, whose 
known as the accuser of the brethren, when we're moved to doubt, how is it that we become so taken with fear then? How can Satan come into the life of a believer? And if you want to get the attention of a believer, a professing believer in our times, again, I've said there have been shifts in the last couple of decades to be sure. But I remember in the early days of our church here, people that were from the evangelical fundamentalist background in churches that had been for three generations really overwhelmed with dispensational theology as the foundation of their teaching. If you wanted to get somebody's attention and open the door of discussion with regard to Calvinism, and the doctrines of grace. You know, people always want to run to the L and the tulip, limited atonement. That seems such an easy thing to just put out there and say, yeah, I can never be a Calvinist. If you wanted to get their attention, speak to them about assurance. Speak to them about doubting your salvation. Speak to them about multiple decisions. Speak to them about faulty counseling. Well, if you don't remember or if maybe you weren't sincere enough or you didn't pray the right prayer, then just do it again. Do it now. And how many preachers would have somebody pray the prayer again and then go tell everybody, we put another mark on the thing. Put another tally in the back of the next book of how many conversions we'd had. I remember being amazed at one well-known well, evangelical might not even be an accurate word, but preacher of the last century. Speaking of conversions in the church, upwards beyond 30,000 conversions in a church that had a membership of 2,000 maybe. I scratched my head, something not right there. But you see, the buses went out and the decisions were tallied every week. How many times you get a kid to raise their hand and make a decision? And then how many times did that kid become a teenager and doubt his salvation? And they get pointed to, you need to make another decision. And what was the struggle? Constantly pointed back to self. Constantly pointed back to that part of redemption that we supply. Instead of Jesus. Make sure you get that part right. You have people that are struggling with that type of confusion. And then you preach hard to them about yielding their members as instruments of righteousness. And if they're genuinely saved, and I believe many were genuinely saved, just ill-taught. The Spirit dwelling with them would affirm, yes, I need to be more and more yielded unto God. But when they would fight sin, when they would admit the power of temptation in their lives, well, am I really saved then? If, if sin has this ability to impact me, and they'd be pointed back to self, instead of pointed back to Christ. 
They were struggling with yielding. They were struggling with assurance because they weren't reckoning upon gospel truth that they knew about what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ. And that's how so many, I remember in the early days of the free church, particularly in Greenville as we had come along, their testimony was it was like getting saved all over again. Not that they were coming to new decisions and walking the aisles again, but it was coming to understand what it means to be in Christ. Of what imputed righteousness is all about. And so here, as Paul again deals with a very practical subject, of changed lives, of walking in the right path instead of the wrong path, before he ever comes to our last word, which we'll have to come back to. He calls upon them to think back to what they know is true of the gospel. And then reckoning upon that, acknowledging that truth, See, if God has dealt with me in Christ, if God views me in Christ, then I can view myself in Christ. And one of the ironies of the Gospel is reckoning upon that knowledge doesn't lead the regenerate believer to say, well then I'll just keep sinning. That grace may abound. No, that's what thrusts us more upon Him as we yield ourselves. Paul's going to come into a metaphor here in the remainder of the chapter. Sin used to reign over you. And it doesn't anymore. You're not the servants of sin anymore. Actually now, you're the servants of God. And you yield yourselves. You don't yield your body. You don't yield your members as instruments. And that's actually a word that's used of weapons. You don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness. You yield them as instruments of righteousness. You're enabled to walk in newness of life. And as Paul comes here in that call to yield and We'll have to come back to this, I'm sure, but in case we don't, it would almost be humorous to think that we would not. But that last phrase of verse 14, you're not under the law, but under grace. How many of us were raised under preaching that taught this was the New Testament believer's position in this dispensation in contrast to the Old Testament person's position under the law in the Old Testament dispensation. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. Where have we seen different ages of history in Romans 6 or 5 or 4? I mean, in chapter 4, he used people from the Old Dispensation as illustrations of his doctrine of justification by faith alone for this, for all 
dispensations. What he's saying here, what we're called upon to know, to reckon upon as the means of helping us yield, is we're not under the law. The law has no power over us anymore. Its power as a condemning force to place us under God's wrath and eternal condemnation is finished. Because Jesus took that condemnation. Jesus took that condemnation upon Himself. And we were in Him when He did it. Just as the law has no more power over Jesus to take Him back to another cross, it has no power over us to present us to God for judgment and condemnation any longer. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Far from being a statement of dispensational truth, the last half of verse 14 is a statement about the believer's relationship to the law prior to and subsequent to His justification. In Jesus Christ, we're freed from the law. We're freed from sin. We're freed from the death that belongs to them. These are the things we need to know so that we can reckon upon them and thus yield ourselves unto God. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we today come and ask that You will grant us grace. In reading perhaps familiar verses and phrases from Your Word, And yet in the flow of this argument, to see their power. To see what we're called upon to understand and believe. And to reckon upon it. And what is this but walking by faith? Believing what you have said is true. As we read in that 11th chapter of Hebrews and that roll call of faith. It was through reckonings like these that Moses and the others walked in that newness of life. So help us today. Lord, give us a zeal to understand the simplicity that is in Christ of what it means to be united, joined to, baptized into Jesus, that we might indeed walk in that newness of life. Prosper your word. Give us the help of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.